The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is David Scranton. Uh, he is the founder of the Advisors Academy and also the author of a book called Financial Insanity, How to Keep Wall Street's Cancer from Spreading to Your Portfolio. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Just start with a little bit of your background. You've got both this academy, um, but just kind of give us a sense of your history and how you got to this where you are now. Uh, I began uh, 27 years ago as a financial advisor specializing in, I guess like most financial advisors, specializing in stock market-based strategies. And um, I made a change in the late 1990s when I saw that the the stock market was about to go into a pretty long-term bear market cycle. And I changed my specialty so that since then I've specialized in and still specialize in what I often refer to as the universe of non-stock market income generating options. And tell us about the, the, kind of the, the current situation for a lot of people is they've got capital sitting in CDs and money market funds, treasury bills, pretty much earning almost zero today. And they're very, very frightened about taking any risk to get higher income, yet their cost of living is going up for food and gas and taxes and health care and everything else. So they're really in a quandary. How can you help people in that circumstance? Well, the, this universe I was referring to of income-generating investments is, for some, an alternative when they get out of the stock market because they're tired of the roller coaster ride they've been through over the last 14 years. But for others who are what I'd consider to be a victim of Federal Reserve manipulation, um, you know, people who are in bank CDs and, and really cannot generate hardly any interest, uh, you know, this universe allows them to start to generate income in the range of you know, typically 4 to 6 or 4 to 7% on their capital without the risk of the stock market. Not necessarily no risk, I'm not saying that, but without the risk of the stock market. So let's go into some of those alternatives uh, that you uh, refer people to and the pros and cons of different ones, uh, starting maybe with preferred and preferred stocks. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of getting into preferreds? Well, if, if, if I may, I'd like to hit corporate bonds first. I think it's, people, it's easier for people to understand preferreds once they understand corporate bonds. Okay, that makes sure, sense? that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, corporate bonds are a uh, is is most some people know when you buy a stock you have ownership in the corporation. Um, when you buy a bond, you've lent money to a corporation. So, an analogy of how the risk and return works between stocks and bonds, you know, being corporate bonds, would be as if you and I bought a home together. But for some reason, there was a rule which said that the home could only be in one person's name. Now, our initial plan was this home was going to be $200,000. You're putting up $100,000. i am putting up $100,000. But now, we, we, we can't have it in both names, so what do we do? Well, I might come to you and say, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, put the house in your name. You put your 100000 into it, and I'm going to lend you 100000 against that home. 
and you can make payments back to me. Okay, so now it's in your name, and I'm just a creditor. Well, if things go well, and the house goes up to $300,000, who has benefited from the $100,000 of profit? Well, the owner, not the lender. That's right. You've benefited from that. I've gotten my measly 4 or 5% interest, whatever it is, and you've reaped all the rewards. Conversely, if the house drops from 200000 down to 150, then now who took the $50,000 loss? Well, the same thing, the owner, would that, although the lender may be worried at that point that he's not got the collateral he thought he had. Right. I mean, I, I've made my same 4 or 5% interest, whether the house is going up or down, um, and you've lost half of your investment because your $100,000 down payment dropped to fifty. Okay. But as a bondholder, I'm not worried about that yet because I have a $100,000 lien and the property's still worth one fifty. But what happens now if the property drops to $90,000 of value? And let's say that you don't care about me as a person um, and now the house is worth 90000 you owe 100 Assuming you don't care about your credit or don't care about me as a person, what are you likely to do then? You could foreclose. Give it back to me. That's right. So here, Dave, right. here's your house. Take it. Have fun with all that. Yeah. So I like that analogy because I think it's a good analogy for how stocks and bonds work together and how corporations raise capital. So when, when we're picking corporate bonds, the biggest thing is you want to make sure that the company doesn't become insolvent. Uh, it's not like a stock where I'm worried about consistent quarterly earnings growth or increasing market share or anything like that. When I choose a corporate bond for a client, I'm really just concerned about can this company stay in business and pay its bills. Right? And what's interesting about corporate bonds is when you buy an individual corporate bond, you have two important guarantees. First, you have a guaranteed interest rate for the life of the bond. And when the bond matures, you're guaranteed to get your principal or face value back. Between now and maturity, the value of the bond might fluctuate based upon market conditions. So if somebody wanted to sell it early, they might get back more or less than they invested. But provided they plan to hold it to maturity, they know exactly what they're going to earn. Fixed interest rate and fixed repayment of principal at maturity. Um, The only risk they have is in a case of a corporate default or bankruptcy, just like a house example. Do, do you recommend, in general, higher-yielding, uh, lower-quality corporate bonds or stay with higher-quality, lower-yielding ones? It depends on the client, obviously, and their own risk tolerance level. However, I will tell you that there's often a sweet spot um, on just a level right below investment quality, double B-rated bonds, for example. Because financial institutions, if, if they drop below that magical triple B investment rate and a financial institution invests in, let's say, a double B bond, uh, for every dollar they put into that bond, generally speaking, they have to put about three times as much into a reserve as they would if they had a triple B bond. So most financial institutions won't go below that line because now they have to put up a lot of extra capital as a reserve to protect against default. Well, what that means for your average investor is that you might go from double A to single A, and, and maybe your average bond yield might go up a quarter percent. You go from single A to triple B, it might go up a quarter percent. If
if you go from triple B to double B, it might jump up a whole percent. So that seems to be a sweet spot right there for those reasons. But still, at the end of the day, the biggest factor is the individual client situation and their own risk tolerance level. In buying uh, bonds, do you recommend people buy individual bonds or uh, ETFs or bond funds? And how much money do you need for it to be appropriate to buy individual bonds versus ETFs or funds? That's a great question. And yes, I'm absolutely a fan of individual bonds over the funds. Um, I'm a big fan of ETFs when people are in the stock market, but for any kind of bond fund gives up those two guarantees I just mentioned that individual bonds have. You know, when you're in a bond fund, you don't have a guaranteed fixed interest rate, nor do you have a date at which it matures and you're guaranteed to get all your principal back. So what could turn out to be a paper loss with an individual bond if if the market values drop uh, actually can very well become a real or actual loss in a bond fund. So how much do you need to have? Well, you need to have at least 100000 to diversify in the corporate bond market. Um, that's, that's a nice minimum guideline. Uh, I believe that certainly anybody with more than 250000 in bonds really should never even consider bond funds. They should stick to individual bonds if they're over two fifty. But even at 100000 you can diversify a portfolio pretty well with individual issues. Let's, go, let's switch to preferred now. So we've talked about corporate bonds. What would be the advantage of doing preferreds over corporate bonds? Extra yield. Extra yield, uh, about an extra 2% or so. Um, preferreds, is, for those who don't know, preferreds are technically considered a class of stock. But in reality, they're a hybrid between stocks and bonds in terms of how they function. And further into reality, they're, they're more bond-like than they are stock-like in many ways. Uh, they pay a fixed dividend rate. Uh, in bonds, it's called interest. In preferreds, it's called uh, dividend. Um, the dividend, unlike a common stock, with a preferred is actually stated right on the certificate, so it is fixed. Um, they have a par value, just like bonds have a face value. Preferreds have a par value, oftentimes $25 a share. So they go up and they go down, but they... And you know, that twenty-five dollars a share tends to be a sticky number. What industries do you like preferreds in? Uh, a lot of the financials are issue them, but are there particular industries you like uh, issuing preferreds? Well, it, it, it is a little sticky. Uh, it's diversified more. I will tell you, back before the financial crisis, preferreds are—they uh, were more uh, financials. About seventy percent of all preferreds were financials. That has diversified now where you can get lots of telecommunications companies, for example, uh, that, that are part of our infrastructure that issue preferreds that you know, in most cases you probably wouldn't worry about utilities, for example, where you're really not going to worry so much about a default. Yeah, and, and how about uh, ETFs and preferreds? There are some out there. Do you think that's a good way to diversify if you don't have enough money? With preferreds, yes, because my only argument against bond funds and bond ETFs is that, you know, you, they don't have that maturity date where they, they give you back your principal. Um, in the case of preferreds, even individual preferreds don't really have a maturity date, which, which by the way, is the one way in which preferreds are stock-like, is that there's no maturity date where they guarantee to pay you back your principal, uh, which means at some point, either the investor or the investor's heirs are going to have to sell those preferreds at market value. And that's why there's about a 2% additional 
yield on those compared to equivalent corporates because of that extra risk. And do you like uh, convertible preferreds as another way of doing it with having it more of an equity kicker? It depends. Um, the convertible preferreds are really just a preferred with an embedded call option on a stock. And if the call option is out of the money so that uh, you know, it's not selling above par, much above par, you know, that, then it's okay. But where you have to be careful is where the option is actually in the money. And then as a result, uh, if the stock market, the common stock market drops, it actually could affect part of the price of the preferreds. That's what you want to avoid. But as long as it's out of the money, I have no problem with that. It's going to, it's going to pay a little bit less yield, dividend yield, than an equivalent uh, non-convertible preferred. But it's up to the investor's needs. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is David Scranton. Uh, he is the founder of the Advisors Academy uh, based in Florida. Uh, he's also written a book called Financial Insanity, How to Keep Wall Street's Cancer from Spreading to Your Portfolio. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is David Scranton. Uh, he is the uh, founder of the Advisors Academy and also the author of a book called Financial Insanity. Uh, his website is scrantonfinancialgroup.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Well, thank you. Just want to talk about Advisors Academy briefly here. Um, kind of tell us your story and how you started this and 
what kind of things Advisors Academy does for helping financial planners uh, do a better job with their clients? Uh, Advise Academy started because in, in when we had, had the tech bubble burst shortly after the uh, beginning of the year in 2000, uh, it took nearly seven years for the market to drop by nearly half and, and then recover. Um, you might remember from a few minutes ago I mentioned that at, at the beginning, uh, when I changed my business model away from stocks into fixed income, that was back in the late 90s when I knew we were going to go into this cycle based upon my research. So as the market dropped from 2000 to 2003 and then recovered in 2006, I thought for sure that most advisors would have caught on and realized this is a predictable, repeatable cycle. And um, I realized that that just wasn't happening. So I said, you know, now that we're back close to a peak, there's going to be another major drop, market drop around the corner. Uh, it took till the end of 07 before that started. So I said, okay, how can I help get the word out to financial advisors and leverage the knowledge and research that I have so that they can help their clients better? And that was what we began in late 2006 with Advisors Academy. So what is it that uh, advisors are not doing right that you're able to help them do better in the way they help their clients? The, the biggest thing, and it's still the case, after the second market drop in recovery, it's still the case, is that most advisors don't know this basic research that I have um, about how predictable and repeatable stock market cycles have been throughout history. I use some a real, real simple analysis of stock market history to predict that we're going to go into this in the late 1990s. And unfortunately, most advisors get their research directly or indirectly from uh, some Wall Street firm or Wall Street research firm who kind of sort of has an axe to grind to sell optimism, to make investors more optimistic about the markets and advisors more optimistic. And most advisors don't realize this. So it's amazing when I see the light bulbs go off when I'm training a group of new advisors. And you know, they just can't believe 20, 30 years in the business sometimes, and they don't have the simple information that I was able to use to predict these market cycles that we're, we're now involved with. And where are we in the current market cycle? We've had a big up move for a long time. Where are we in the cycle? Well, we're, we're breaking some rules right now in large part because the federal intervention. Um, because what's happening is uh, by, by lowering long-term interest rates, they're making bonds and bond-like instruments less attractive than they were. So it's pushing people off the risk curve. People are saying, well, gosh, I can't make money in the bank. Bond yields are down. So you know what? I'm just going to put my money in the market. So it's, it's, it's gotten us 25% over the previous peak from October of 2007. And, uh, but history shows that every single secular bear market we've ever had in history, going back nearly 200 years, has had three or more major drops. This time, we haven't had the third drop yet. So my concern is now that the government is pulling back on this quantitative easing and they're claiming that they hope to be out of it by October, the thing that was artificially supporting the markets now is getting pulled out from beneath it. And I believe that that you know, we could be seeing relatively shortly that third major drop coming. So how would you have people prepare, prepare for that if you do see a major drop coming? Well, there's two basic ways. It really depends upon the risk tolerance level. But, you know, part would be to take money out of the markets and to go into these things that, that this universe of income generating alternatives like the bonds, like the preferreds, and so on. The other one for some people who have the risk tolerance is take some money off the table and sit some cash on the sidelines that's poised for market reentry. 
You know, the rich get richer because they always have cash on the sidelines to take advantage of opportunities. Most average investors are fully invested at all times, which means they simply cannot do this. So for a lot of people, I have them putting some money in cash poised for market reentry and, and other monies in this universe of income-generating alternatives. Explain briefly in Scranton Financial Group, uh, what kind of clients do you take and is there a minimum and kind of what kind of asset management do you do for your clients? Um, we are actually licensed as a firm to go to do both types of asset management, commission-based asset management as well as fee-based asset management. Um, our policy on the fee basis is we reduce, we reduce our fees when we're in income-generating alternatives. You know, a lot of advisors who do this type of thing are usually 1% to 1.5% fee, um, and, and I believe that's part of the reason why they tend to gear themselves towards stocks and stock funds, because to justify that kind of fee, they have to have people in things that require active management. Um, we lower our fees well below 1% uh, when we do these, when we focus on these income-generating options. So we might make less money along the way, but we're doing what we feel at least is, is the right thing for the client. Very good. One of the other areas you talked about is REITs, real estate investment trusts. What are the pros and cons of REITs uh, where we are today? REITs are the riskiest thing in this category. Um, and some would say that REITs really are, REITs are really a type of common stock. So some would say I'm taking literary license by saying they're a class of non-stock market income generating alternative. And, and truthfully, I, I am. However, what makes what, what pushes me to put REITs in this middle category is simply that uh, REITs typically pay a very nice dividend rate because um, they're simply uh, stock of a company that owns rental property. And they have to flow through a vast majority of their rental income they get from these properties to investors. So because it's rental property, they're much more volatile in terms of price than corporate bonds or preferreds. Um, but they do pay good income. So that's why I take the literary license to put them in this category. And within REITs, do you like a particular kind of office or uh, residential or uh, warehouse, uh, hotels? There's all kinds of different REITs out there. Yeah, and again, it depends upon the person's portfolio and so on and so forth, what they have and don't have to diversify. But, you know, in, in an economy like this that's still kind of sputtering along, uh, I would definitely stay away from retail. So I would tend not to go toward shopping plazas or anything like that. Um, industrial space seems to be getting more and more downsized. That's not my favorite. You know, office buildings are great if you have some, some really creditworthy uh, tenants and good sound long-term leases. Uh, there's some health care REITs. You know, the baby boomers are aging. The, the demand for health care is going up, not down. So the health care REITs can be a, a pretty stable one also. Another area you like is annuities. Uh, now, in general, fixed annuities are at pretty low rates today. Do you like the more variable annuities or index uh, annuities? What kind of annuities do you tend to uh, prefer? Yeah, well, very, variable annuities I wouldn't put in this category because they have sub-accounts underlying them, which means that basically you're in the financial markets much like mutual funds. Um, so we're talking about fixed or fixed indexed. And these are really for the more conservative investor, you know, the one who's okay, you know, buying triple B preferreds uh, or putting cash on the sidelines poised for market reentry, you know, may not find the annuity that attractive. Uh, but for those that are more, you know, triple A bond buyers, uh, for them, in many cases with the annuity, they can get more income 
with less risk than even a AAA bond. So it becomes attractive there. We haven't had much chance, and we're about to run out of time here uh, with your book called Financial Insanity. But maybe just tell people briefly what some of the key takeaways are from uh, Financial Insanity. Well, in Financial Insanity, we talk about the predictability and repeatability of these stock market cycles. So actually, and this is a simple two or three hour read. It's, it's not for financial advisors. It's for the average person. And we give you the information that basically my research is to, is to why these cycles have been predictable and repeatable throughout history, why there's likely another drop. But we also talk about why uh, this situation has always persisted and probably always will persist. And we talk a lot about human nature and, and how it affects that. Uh, then we talk briefly about the different types of options at the end, uh, some of the options we talked about here today on your show. So is a, it's a cycle between fear and greed. You're saying we're kind of pretty high on the greed part of the cycle now, right now? We're very high on the greed cycle. Um, you remember it was just, uh, I think it was a few years ago, when we were worried about Spain and Portugal and Italy maybe defaulting on their debt? Yes. Well, what's interesting is you take our 10-year government bond and compare it to theirs, and right now, Spain and Italy's 10-year government bond is only about three-tenths of a percent higher than ours in terms of interest payment. That means investors have, have the rational exuberance to seep back in, even with bonds, where they feel like, gee, we only need to get three-tenths of a percent more to compensate us on the risk from going from U.S. government bonds to Italy bonds or Spain bonds. Portugal was like... I'm sorry? You're saying that's not rational with the reality of what's going on in Spain, Italy, and Portugal. No, it's not rational, and Portugal was the same, and then last week some bad news came out on Portugal, and all of a sudden their yields jumped up um, to be probably more commensurate with the actual risk inherent there. So you're saying you should stay away from that? They're, they're priced, um, they're too rich for the amount of risk you're taking there? Correct. Absolutely. It's the irrational exuberance. We're kind of seeing it now in the stock market, and we're seeing it in the bond market. There's a lot of money that's been sitting on the sidelines for years, and it's, you know, it's trying to get back in. The reason the economy is sputtering, I believe, is because people are not using the extra money to buy goods and services to stimulate the economy. They're paying off debt, and they're putting it in the financial markets, and that's why you have stock prices and bond prices going up simultaneously, which is, which is rare. Do you think that quantitative easing was a mistake? Yeah, the, the TARP program, the first one, was necessary. We were a few days away from going to the ATM machine and not being able to take a withdrawal. So that was necessary, and the fact that they had to make a decision on how to structure that thing in a very short period of time, that was actually a crisis. They're to be commended for what they did. But QE2 was too much, I believe. Operation Twist was too much, and QE3 was too much. It, it, it's, it's, they're, they're getting, the Fed was getting away from their charter, I believe, as, uh, as it was intended to be initially. And what will be the long-term consequences of uh, having too much QE? To QE? Yeah, the consequences are, are just, you know, government printing money and, and, and really getting into debt that they cannot afford to get out of. You know, your average investor, you're, you're, all your listeners know that they can't borrow money forever and print money and, and get away with it. Eventually, they have to figure out how they're going to pay it back. And, you know, that's where... You know, Greece and Portugal and some of those countries are in trouble now. We just happen to be a few decades behind those countries with us. But if we don't watch it, we're, you know, we could be there also. And I hope, hope to God that doesn't happen. But, you know, that's my concern. And that's why I'm glad to see they're pulling back on that quantitative easing. I think enough is enough. 
We've had some real warnings from David Scranton here. So thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour has been David Scranton. His website is scrantonfinancialgroup.com. Uh, he also runs uh, Advisors. Uh, it's, it's called Advisors Academy, uh, helping financial advisors. And his book is called Financial Insanity, How to Keep Wall Street's Cancer from Spreading to Your Portfolio. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show. Great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Thanks again. And we'll be back again. Uh, in the next half hour with our next guest. Stay for this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Michael Carr. He is the editor of two newsletters, Absolute Profits and Peak Profits. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. Great, thank you. Uh, so let's just start with your background a little bit in picking stocks and kind of how you got into where you are and uh, what kind of uh, methodology you use to pick stocks in both Absolute Profits and Peak Profits. Mm-hmm. Okay. So go, go ahead with your background oh. first before we get to this particular newsletters. Okay, my background is um, I'm a technical analyst in the market. So what I'm looking at is the past price action and using that information to forecast um, the future price moves. So if, rather than looking at technical analysis in the traditional approach, which is a lot of chart reading, I've used my background, which is more in data analysis, to prepare a more quantitative approach to the markets. And uh, I'm actually, I spent a number of years in the Air Force working with programming for nuclear missiles and things like that. So I understand the programming stuff. And one day I noticed that the ideal stock is actually nothing different than the first half of the trajectory of a nuclear missile. You want it to just go straight up. 
And then before it starts falling towards its target, ideally you'd want to sell. So with that understanding in mind and understanding how to program the ups and downs, I turned my attention to the stock market and came up with a more quant-based approach. So is this something that you offer a service where people can do the quantitative analysis or only do they get the results of the quantitative analysis in your recommendations? They just get the results. I have found, um, unfortunately, it's very difficult to help people understand the indicators that actually work in the markets. I know everybody likes to look at stock charts and, for example, put up an RSI, a relative strength index, uh, or other indicators like that. And the truth is, they don't really work well. And when you understand where they came from, you might even understand why they don't work well. RSI was released in 1978, and the author wrote that he picked 14 days for the indicator because that's half the length of the cycle of the moon. Now, I'm not going to place real money on the line based on the cycles of the moon, yet people do that all the time with RSI and other indicators. Uh-huh, okay, <laughs> I would agree with that. So, so you're saying I mean, there's a tremendous amount of technical analysis out there, as you say, trend following. So you're saying most of those people are not getting it right and are wasting their money. Correct. Um, there's a lot of studies that show how the markets really work. And in the long term, trend following does work pretty well. But in the long term, we're talking months to years. In the short term, there's other factors that help uh, identify the best moves in the stocks. And RSI, if you tweak the formula a little bit, you actually can find a way to make it work as a very short-term indicator. Um, plugging in two days into the calculation instead of 14, you do get an indicator that works fairly well, and you'll hold stocks for maybe four to six weeks. So, so let's take the, the two. I'm sorry, go ahead. Let's take the new two newsletters separately. Let's start with absolute profits. What is the uh, intended uh, holding period for the recommendations there typically? For those, it's up to about three months. So we're looking to hold, buy and hold only for about three months or so because we're using strong seasonal influences in that newsletter. And a seasonal influence might be easier to understand by looking at the commodities market or uh, either grain or gasoline, for example. I'm sure most of your listeners know the price of gasoline tends to go up in the summer, especially from Memorial Day to about July 4th for some reason. And that reason is people are going on vacation and driving a lot. Demand is going up. Well, not only drivers noticed this, but traders noticed this years ago. So traders can bid the price up on gasoline in April or March, knowing that demand is going to catch up to the price in the summer. These seasonal tendencies exist for very valid reasons. And I have a program that helps uncover the seasonal tendencies. Then I'm able to verify it with the fundamentals. And then I verify it as buying only when the stock is extremely oversold. So are these stocks only kind of commodity-related things that would be seasonal in, in impact? Because there are some companies that are not that cyclical, or is this applying to all kinds of different stocks? And actually, what we find is seasonals apply to all stocks, almost all stocks. Some won't have a weather-related component or a more traditional seasonal component, but we will find that they make big moves on earnings. 
And in particular, they make a move like retailers, for example. Their, most of their earnings come in their fourth quarter, which ends in January for most retailers, obviously from the holiday season. The time to buy retailers is generally about now in the summer as investors and traders start looking at who's going to be the winner in the holiday season. Remember, the market looks ahead. So we want to find out which retailers are going to be popular six months from now. And traders are already making those bets right now in the stock market. So you have to be six months or so ahead when the actual action action happens, is what you're saying? Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay, so typically three-month holding period. How many stocks typically are you recommending at any particular time in absolute profits? Only seven to ten. I feel once you go much above that number, investors can't really follow what you're saying because if you're recommending a newsletter with three dozen stocks, for example you're spreading people too thin and they can't actually make money. So there are actually formulas that can help us decide what the optimal number of stocks to hold is. And in absolute profits, it points to about seven towards the low end of that range. And what has been the track record roughly of the newsletter over the last few years? Um, I just took over the newsletter in the last month Prior to that, the track record has been in line with the market with, as far as returns go with less volatility and lower drawdowns during the, uh, during the bear market that we had a couple of years ago. So how do you, I think it was Sean Hyman who had it before, is that correct? That's correct. And so how do you, are you going to do it differently than the way Sean was doing it? Yeah, I'm going to rely more upon the seasonal calendar to point me into the right directions. Sean uh, relied more on the intuitive charts reading, and I'm going to strictly stick with the calendar saying this is the time of the year. Now find the best stock in that sector. Okay, so what are some of the areas you're looking at right now uh, that you think have positive seasonal characteristics? Right now, gold actually has a very strong seasonal characteristic, and this one seems to be related to... um, the buying schedule for gold in other countries. India and China are large consumers of gold, and they do a lot of buying year-end and into the spring for various holidays. So in order to have the gold in the jewelry shops and in the um, marketplace in time, there's heavy demand for gold right now. And gold has a very strong seasonal pattern heading into the fall. So why is it that the seasonal element would outweigh other elements such as interest rates or Fed Reserve monetary policy or other things that you would normally think would affect gold? Because those things all play out on the periphery. The actual in anything is supply and demand. And when demand for gold increases as it does towards the second half of the year relative to the first half of the year, the price of gold should go up. And even though the Federal Reserve may do this or that, the demand for gold, for jewelry, and for um, investment purposes in India and China in particular outweighs the demand for other areas of gold. So do you play it through the exchange-traded fund for gold, GLD, or individual stocks? How would you play the upcycle in, uh, seasonal uh, upcycle in gold that you're seeing right now? I prefer to use individual stocks as opposed to an ETF because you have more volatility in an individual stock. 
and that gives you greater gains. Obviously, more volatility carries more risk, but on the flip side, it carries more potential rewards. And Franco Nevada, symbol FNV, is one of the more leveraged, more volatile. It's not really a mining company. It's a royalty company, which means the miners pull gold out of the ground, sell it, and give Franco Nevada part of the sales price in exchange for financing deals they struck years ago. So Franco Nevada has the upside in gold, but doesn't carry the same downside risks that a miner does. This is kind of like silver wheat and in the silver market, right? Same kind of it's exactly like silver wheat, and yes, sir. I see. Okay, so uh, so that is your one gold play right now, or do you have others uh, to play the gold market? That is my favorite. I like to narrow it down to an individual favorite stock within a sector. Okay, and what are some other seasonal sectors uh, that you you think are have positive momentum right now? Um, I do like retailers right now, and that's in anticipation of things getting ready for the fall cycle. Retailers are still kind of basing on the charts. There's no clear breakout winner yet. And it's kind of early to be buying an individual retailer, but that's a sector that I like watching closely right now. That'll probably be where my next buy pick comes from. Um, Has this worked in the last several years? You buy retailers in the summer and, and you're getting them at their lows? It has. So it, all of these strategies have been working fairly well for the past few years, and they're all tested on at least 15 years' worth of data. I mean, people often say about the market, if, it's, if there's a, a cycle in the market, people would know about it enough to play it and therefore destroy it in a certain way. That doesn't happen in the stocks you pick? Yeah, that doesn't really seem to happen in a lot of things. I know people like to say that. But we've known that small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks in the long run for at least 30 years now, and it's still true. We know that relative strength works in the market. The first articles were written about relative strength appeared in 1933, and 80 years later, that strategy still works exactly like it was written about in that Barron's article. So I think that the easy things don't work well in the markets. Um, and then people just blame it as, you know, everybody knows about RSI or MACD, and that's why they don't work. The truth is those strategies don't work because they aren't sound. I see. That's a better indictment of it, I guess I might say. Or- yeah, I think a lot of people do just come up with ideas. If you read most of the books about how to trade, um, they're guilty of the well-selected example. What you see is a chart that shows, gee, the signal worked perfectly. They leave out the thousand charts where it didn't work as well. I see. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Michael Carr. He's the editor of two newsletters, Absolute Profits, which you can find out about at absoluteprofits.com, and also Peak Profits, which you can find out about at peakprofitsreport.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? 
Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Michael Carr. He's the editor of two newsletters, one called Absolute Profits and the other one called Peak Profits. Uh, The websites to find out more about them are absoluteprofits.com and peakprofitsreport.com. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thank you. Tell us a little bit more about Peak Profits and how is that newsletter different from Absolute Profits? Peak Profits has more of a reliance on the idea of relative strength. And relative strength is one of those ideas that, as I mentioned, has been around forever. Um, You know, we see it in the 1930s, and then we see relative strength really become popular in the 1990s with Investor's Business Daily popularizing the topic through the canceling strategy that I'm sure some listeners will be aware of. Yes. The difficulty with following that is the data availability of relative strength. It's not an indicator that's available on websites. So I think a lot of people can't really follow it and don't quite understand the value of it, which is unfortunate. The academic community, which relies largely on the efficient market hypothesis, has carved out a special place for relative strength. They call it the momentum anomaly. So whereas you and I, if we have a hypothesis and it doesn't work, we have to discard it and move on. But if we had a PhD, we could say it works except for these special anomalies. And momentum is one of the anomalies to the efficient market hypothesis. Stocks which have been strong continue to be strong. And this idea absolutely makes sense when you think about it. So the stocks you are recommending in peak profits have a lot of momentum? Is that the idea? Yes. They're the high relative strength stocks within the strongest sectors at that time. So again, we're using the sector, the top-down approach. And... I mean, if we just look beyond the markets to um, 
for example, the sports world. There's, again, PhDs who have studied this kind of stuff, and what they've discovered is if the team is ahead at halftime in the NFL or an NBA game, they're more likely to win. The the team ahead at halftime wins more than 80% of the time. And these studies have been extended to college hockey and a variety of other sports, and they consistently find the team ahead at halftime is the winner. You and I could have done this study from our couches on a weekend and not needed the government money, but that's another story. What we find in the stock market is the same thing. If we think of stock running, stock markets like running a marathon, we want to place our bet at the halfway point, and that's what relative strength lets us do. We pick the winner who's ahead at the 13-mile mark. So you're looking at by sector first, and then within the sector, those that have the strongest relative strength within that sector. Correct. So you're catching, in effect, you're catching the um, the market beta from the sector that's in a, that's ahead, and then you're adding alpha by finding the right stock at the right time. So this seems to go against the classic Wall Street idea of buying low and selling high. You're selling high and want to sell higher, basically. You, that's correct. And your holding period on this in studies and in testing is from three to twelve months. So the standard Wall Street strategy is buy low, hold for many, many years, sell high. The problem with that is what I call the value trap. I buy a value stock, I'm the smartest guy in the room, and I need to wait for other people to recognize how smart I am so that they'll start bidding the stock up. With relative strength, I can spot when they've caught on to how smart the value investors are, and we're buying the stocks as they're moving up. So you don't have to wait for other people to kind of get on board that way. I think that's the problem with value investing is you can be absolutely right and have dead money for years. Relative strength avoids the problem of the dead money. And how do you catch it when, when the relative strength disappears? I mean, you say you get, I mean, for example, earlier this year, you had all the high beta companies, the Netflix and Tesla and uh, the biotech companies and uh, you know, the really hot stocks all of a sudden seem to have tremendous relative strength, and then like within a month, lost it and really dropped very, very sharply. Can you spot something like that happening before you get hurt? You absolutely can. The sell signals for Netflix, for example, came three weeks before the stock turned lower on relative strength. What we do see is that relative strength turns down. It's like in the sports game. If a team's ahead at halftime and they're going to blow the game, you catch on sometime before the end that this team has really lost their momentum. It's not a sports game. We don't have to cheer for the same team till the end. We can, when we spot the momentum turned down, we can sell. And that consistently happens in the stock market. And you spot that by the relative strength line turning negative, or what is it that you use to spot it falling down? Correct. Relative strength will generally be calculated with a percentile. So what I used to catch a turning down is a drop below 70. When the stock is no longer outperforming 70% of the market, it's time to sell it. So you have that as an automatic sell signal? I do. So you don't override your own feelings sometimes. You just kind of do it automatically. I don't. I use the. I realized years ago the computer's very smart and I'm very emotional and it doesn't work in the market. So I keep a paper account sometimes for when I want to override the computer signals and 
in that paper account, I've lost millions of dollars trying to prove <laughs> how smart I am. <laughs> so the computer, the, the lack of emotion is a good thing in a case like this. Yeah, on days, honestly, when it's, you know, I'm right, or I think the computer's wrong, um, I'll just take the dog for a walk and ignore the closing prices until they come in later. So what are some of the sectors right now that have best relative strength, and what are some of the stocks within that that you like? Uh, yeah, again, it's gold that pops up at the top of the list for um, a yeah, breakout. Within individual stocks, um, within varied sectors, and because this is a relative strength-based system, all I can do is tell you the names. I don't know what the companies do because I'm a pure quantitative trader in this case. Mm-hmm. So I have the great-looking symbols right now are companies called PMFG, Ingalls Market, which is IMKTA. PMFG, the symbol is also PMFG. Ventess, which is a symbol VTR. Harley-Davidson, HOG. And Textron, TXT. So these are done purely technical. You're just looking at the charts. You're not getting into their fundamentals at all. Correct. I happen to know what Harley-Davidson does, but I don't know about any of the others. And so that works works pretty well for you, but... You, but you're just clearly following charts, and when the relative strength falls below, you're out of it, basically, is the way it works. Correct. Now, if I can have just a few moments, I can explain how your listeners can do that in their 401ks sure. if they want to, just to take this approach and make it more meaningful. Okay. In a typical 401k, let's say maybe you have 12 different options that you can invest in. Your company provides a range of funds, and there's 12 of them. Once a month, you take each of those funds, and you calculate the six-month rate of change in the stock or the fund. So you take the price today, divide it by the price six months ago, and subtract one. That's the only formula you need, the rate of change. You do that for all 12. You sort them from highest to lowest. To have a diversified portfolio, you buy the top-ranked fund, the one with the highest rate of change over the past six months, and that's it. You don't add anything else to it. You sell it when it falls below the third rank. So every month you sort them from high to low. When the one you own is ranked four, you sell it and you buy the current number one. That's all you do. I've tested that on a variety of different options and that strategy consistently outperforms the stock market. It's pretty simple actually as well. It is, it's actually as simple as you can come with a mechanical system. And it's kind of, I'd say it's mathematically predestined to beat the market because you're in the market leader at the time it's leading. Until it's not leading anymore and then you go to what is leading, basically. Exactly. And you're selling when that happens. You're not guessing when tech stocks are falling out of favor. You actually have a system that tells you when to sell, and I think most importantly, tells you what to buy after you sell. So it's letting the market speak to you in a certain way. Yes. And anyone with discipline can beat the market using that kind of a strategy. Very good. Well, this has been very fascinating. My guest this half hour has been Michael Carr. Uh, He's the editor of two newsletters, uh, one called Absolute Profits, and you can find out about that at absoluteprofits.com. His other one is called Peak Profits, and his newsletter you can find out about at peakprofitsreport.com.
Thanks so much for being a guest on the Money, uh, Money Answer Show, Michael. Thank you. And we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 